Welcome, everyone, uh, to Match Day 365 podcast. We have a very special guest today, my first guest um, on the podcast in our history, so it's a memorable moment for, for Match Day 365. Uh, we have uh, Danny Butterfield, former uh, Grimsby, uh, Palace, Southampton, Charlton, Bolton, Carlisle, and Exeter uh, right back. So um, welcome, Danny, to the podcast. I really appreciate you coming on. Thanks for having me. Thanks for the invite. Yeah, no problem. Um, as I mentioned before, kind of we turned the mics on. Most of my followers are Palace fans. So really, really excited to um, uh, allow them the chance to kind of hear from you, talk about Palace a little bit in your time there uh, back in the 2000s. So um, I, I'm curious. So you, you're, you've, you've been a manager slash a coach for a couple of years um, since you retired from, retired from football. But um, with Macclesfield going under kind of, you are kind of out of a job at the moment. So uh, I guess talk about that and talk about your, um, what you've been doing since your playing days. I think my, the, the transition from playing, I, I left Palace, went down to Southampton, left Southampton, went down to Exeter. And I was sort of playing there for 12 months. And then the transition into coaching sort of happened naturally with helping out in the, the reserves and um, before I know it, I was taking the first team sessions alongside the uh, the manager. And um, so the transition from playing into, into coaching happened pretty smoothly and, and the opportunity given to me by Paul Tisdale was was a, a good one and, and the responsibility sort of thrown in the deep end, if you like. So um, since then, obviously, I went to South, back to Southampton to coach the under-18s and then I um, was asked by Paul Tisdale to join him at NK Dons where... We had a successful year getting promoted to, to League One and then uh, a sticky four months where I end up getting a sack. So it's a, a tough industry, a brutal industry. But then um, another friend who I played with at Palace, Mark Kennedy, he was offered the Macclesfield job and asked me to join him in January. Um, unfortunately, ended in March because of the um, the lockdown. Um, and then unfortunately, the, the financial implications meant Macclesfield went bust. So... Um, currently sit unemployed, but trying to get back in the game, which is which is tough um, due to the financial climate, really. Yeah, and um, I know at Exeter you were kind of a player coach for for a bit of time. I'm curious about what that was what that was like for you. I mean, that's not something that many players uh, kind of had the experience to do toward the end of their career. So, what, what was it like being a player coach? I think the I think because I played at a higher level than the players that I'll share in the dressing room with, I almost had their immediate respect um, and probably my seniority, my age at the time of 33, 34, they, um, I was respected by the team. So to then go into coaching them players as well as playing alongside them, um, they, they received that quite openly. So it wasn't like, oh, hold on a minute, he's now jumped to the other side of the fence and he's now a coach and he's stabbing us all in the back and picking a team. So they, that, was, that was convenient. Um, I think uh, I, was, I was speaking to someone the other day and sometimes I would arrive at a stadium, I'd go and set the warm-up up, lay the cones out, set the possession game up, um, go into the referee's room, do the team sheets uh, as a captain and then I'd go back out, take the warm-up, pick the cones up, grab the armband, put the shirt on and go and play. So it was, some days it was um, probably a lot of a lot of players, coaches would think, wow, what you're doing the warm and then you're going on and playing and then you're seeing the referee, et cetera, et cetera. But it was just a transition I needed to take to, to then become a coach. And um, as I said, the, the players at Exeter and the staff at Exeter were open to it because they obviously felt that I, I could offer the, offer the team something. And that made me think about one of my questions that I had for you was, um, I, had, I I'm, live in the States, but I, I worked for, for a small club for a few months, a few summers ago. And um, I was actually there to experience uh, deadline day and experiencing that from kind of the inside was a really neat, neat experience, but um, it was crazy. And I've always wondered what it's like um, as a professional footballer uh, going through something like that and not really knowing where you're going to even be living in 24 or 48 hours, where your future is going to take you. So have you experienced um, a deadline day where you have no idea what's going to happen or have you, have you been sold on deadline day before? I've not, um, I've not on the official transfer window, but there's also, uh, there's also the loan window. So managers try and grab players on. It's pretty similar. So, so, so managers then try and get players in on loan. And I remember when I was at Palace, 
Um, we trained in the morning and I was obviously, it was under Neil Warnock and I was the um, first choice right back. So I was playing week in, week out. Um, we were struggling for goals and typical of Neil, he um, he rung me up. I live close to the training ground. And he asked me to come into the training ground. So he, he rang me up and went into the training ground and he said, um, uh, he said, but I want you to go, um, I want you to go on loan for me. And I'm thinking, well, you're sending me out on loan. How is this for you? So um, he said to me, Charlton says, there's only one club. There's only a club that wants one of our players and that's you. And I need finances to bring in a striker. He said, I want you to go and do me a favour so I can have a good end to the season. But then I promise you'll come back and be my right back next year. And to be honest, I th I thought when someone tells you that, they're asking you to leave. So I'm going to leave. Um, but secondly, I thought my Palace career is done. It's finished. So um, I, I went to Charlton. They were probably 11 points, 12 points adrift at the time at the foot of the table. So... Um, we managed to scrape some points back, but Charlton being Palace rivals, they um, they didn't particularly like me. And I think Palace fans were a little bit question mark as to why I did it uh, or, you know, I was never going to come back. But in fairness to Neil, the loan was finished all but the next day of the loan. Uh, I think they signed Anthony Stokes from Sunderland, maybe, as the striker. And he didn't actually score many goals, didn't do great at Palace in all honesty. Um, but then the loan finished. Neil Warnock rung me up and said, but I'll see you first day pre-season and I'm sticking to my word. So I ended up going back to Palace and playing um, for, for the next two or three years. But um, the strange thing is that come completely unexpected. Normally players know they're going to go in a transfer window. Either they're doing really well and a club's likely to buy them or they're really not wanted and a manager wants them out. And um, I didn't see that coming at all because I was playing week in, week out and doing okay. So that was a surprise. But fortunate enough for me, I, Charlton's literally, I probably lived as close to their training ground as I did the Palace training ground. So it's not like I then had to uproot and move um, and to then, you know, the other end of the country and leave the family behind. So I was fortunate in, in that situation. Yeah, I'm sure you were thrilled to return to Palace. I, I mean, I'd seen a few of your interviews and I mean, it's quite obvious how much you love and respect the club. So um was um, now that I get to thinking of it, Palace was that 2008 where you were loaned out to, to Charlton? Uh, that that season, the 08 09 season. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Okay, and Nathaniel Klein was at the club at the time, correct? Yep. Yep. So uh, another thing I wanted to ask you. So I mean, a lot of times in and I'm sure in football, there's things out of your control that happen um, where you have to have a lot of mental fortitude. So. Uh, I guess talk about your experiences going through uh, situations like we just talked about where um, things happen out of your control and you have to uh, just kind of mentally fight back in a way and, and how challenging that can be. Yeah, I think the, I think um, you're always fighting for the shirt. You're always fighting for the jersey because there's always a young up and coming kid underneath you who's trying to fight to take the shirt away from you. And it, it is, although it's a team sport, it's a brutal industry because you're effectively a, a self-employed businessman because you're trying to play as many games earn as much money as you can for you and your family in a short period of time so um it doesn't often get looked at like that but that's effectively what's going on and um as as we all know football teams year on year um sign new players they always try and blood new youngsters so um for instance you mentioned nathaniel klein there who's coming through and and went on to have um a very very good career and still playing for back at the palace now so um i think you just go back yourself you back yourself in your performances you you know that you need to be on top of your game consistently else um you're going to lose your spot and if you lose your spot then um you're forever fighting to get it back and if age isn't on your side then you sort of can see the writings on the wall that someone else is taking your place but um funny enough i was at um palace with uh, Klein and he was my understudy if you like and I moved to Southampton I had a couple of successful years there and um, Klein then signed at Southampton and basically overtook me so um, it was definitely coming for me and it was great banter in the dressing room because the players knew the story people knew that you know Klein was the number two I was the number one at Palace and then it quickly turned in the Premier League at Southampton with him becoming the number one and me becoming the number two so 
the banter in the dressing room is brilliant because then they're, you know, I'm, I remember receiving um, a secret Santa present and it was um, uh, a, a pillow with um, keep calm and carry on as if I was raging about Kleine taking my place and that. So, and a signed photo of Kleine in his Southampton kit in a frame was another one. So it's, it's all good fun and, and everyone knows how competitive it is at times in the dressing room, but, um, you know, you can be, uh, open enough to be light-hearted at times about that things. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, let's hope that whenever you uh, are a manager sometime soon, that Nathaniel Klein doesn't retire and, and take, your, take your job there. Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so, so when, you, when you were growing up, and I know you spent your youth career at Grimsby Town, um, you, did you grow up in Grimsby or was it Boston? Boston? An hour away, yeah. It's about okay. an hour from Grimsby, yeah. Okay. Did you always want to be a professional footballer or was, was any other career in, in your mind or was that kind of... Never. Yeah, I never... I was obsessed with football from a young age. I, I was so passionate about becoming professional that um, you could arguably say um, naive to not think of another career, but I was so obsessed to become a footballer that uh, I believed I was capable and I was going to do it. Um, unfortunately enough, I did. Right. Um... I was looking up your uh, stats, statistics from Grimsby Town and doing some research. And actually, you are the most recent player to score for Grimsby against Hull. And I know Hull, Hull and Grimsby is a pretty big, pretty big rivalry. You're, you're the latest player to score against Hull. Um, mm -hmm. I think they, they've only played, played twice, including last, last week they, they played. Yeah, yeah Grimsby lost 3-0. But, um, but yeah, and that was your first career uh, goal was against Hull. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I guess talk about that. Uh, I, think it's, I think you, because I play in a position which is not notorious for scoring goals, I think, I remember that night, I, I think I played right in the field and I think the, um, I think the, I don't think the ball was any further than two or three inches from the goal when I put it in, but um, yeah, I'll keep that one quiet and say it was a 30-yard screamer. But the um yeah, I think the 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 excitement, the joys, I think I celebrated as if it was the best goal that football had ever seen. I, I went slightly loopy. Um but the um yeah, the joy of then winning the game and the, the goal the goal being the winner was um certainly enjoyable and um for it to be your first in your career, it's extra special against your local rivals as well. Mm -hmm. And then Grimsby went on to win the the Football League trophy that year, correct? Yeah, we had a successful year. So we went to Wembley twice. We won the Football League trophy and then obviously got promoted through the playoffs. So it was a pretty um, eventful first season in the professional game for me. I guess that kind of leads into the um, League Cup win at Anfield in 2001, uh, where you guys beat Liverpool. Uh, what was that like? Well, you go into them, you go into them games and you know it's... Uh, you're in a win-win situation, really, because you're massive underdogs. Liverpool had, you know, Michael Owen, Emil Heskey, big um, Sammy Hippier, Jamie Redknapp, Gary McAllister. They had big, big hitters in the game, obviously playing in the Premier League. And we were little old Grimsby that were fighting to get into, um, fighting to stay in the Championship every year. So uh, the, finances, the finances to build the two teams were, you know, chalk and cheese. So, um you're in a win-win situation. You're expected to go there and get beat. And we rode our luck for sure. Um, I remember, I think I cleared two or three off the line myself and I wasn't the only one to do it. So we definitely rode our luck. Um, but sometimes in football that happens. And um, Phil Jevons then scores an unbelievable goal, unlike my first one. Um, he scores one from probably 30, 35 yards on an angle at Anfield that, most people in world football wouldn't hit. So it was a it was a one-off occasion, but for us then to see the away end erupt and go absolutely mental and literally lucky enough for us, there weren't much left of the game. So we didn't have much more hanging on to do. So um, it was a great achievement and I'm sure something the Grimsby fans still cherish now. Right. Um, and then was it just a year later you moved on to Palace and uh, Grimsby had played Palace, was it in 2001? Um, where Palace kind of caught, caught your attention or you caught their attention. Um, yeah. Were there any other clubs after you, after you aside from Palace uh, in that, that time? 
when I when I had the when I had a call from Palace to say you know we're interested in signing you, will you come down and have talks? Obviously, I um I met my agent in London and we went across to the training ground and um, as we pulled into the car park, he said, well. We'll see what Palace offer you, but Cardiff also want to sign you. And Cardiff were in League One at the time. And my old Grimsby manager, Lenny Lawrence, was actually the manager of Cardiff. So you could see the connection is probably why he, he wanted to sign me because he'd worked with me before. But um, I didn't leave the Palace training ground without signing. My agent said, listen, I think this is a really good move for you. They're, an up and, uh, they're a club which try and fight to get into the Premier League. Uh, Cardiff are in the league below and I think it, this you know he sort of said I think I think um, this would be the best move for you as a career move and also financially so um, I didn't leave the training ground I spoke with Trevor Francis and within an hour or so it was all signed uh, signed and sealed. Mm. In those first two seasons at Palace I, I think you missed just one one uh, league game yeah. um, which kind of leads into my next question slash something I'm curious about. So, I mean, you have, what, maybe six weeks, two months off in between seasons. Um, and you're, and especially in the championship, you're playing 46 games plus the cup games. Um, what kind of toll does that take on your, your body? I mean, I'm sure you have to be in phenomenal shape, but what is that like going through a grueling championship season playing 46 games uh, and kind of have to be at, being at the top of your, you know, physical level at all times. Yeah, I think because the games are um, sort of Saturday, Tuesday, Saturday, Tuesday, you know, it's mm. pretty repetitive. Once you get your base fitness in pre-season, which is massively important to give you the, you know, your, like I say, your base ready to go for the season, you're almost playing, recovering, playing, recovering, playing, recovering. And you often find people that struggle are the ones that um, aren't playing regularly. So they'll come into a come into the team cold, if you like. They play on a Saturday, they play on a Tuesday, they play on a Saturday. By the following Tuesday, something's gone, a muscle's torn or something because the impact and the, the load just goes through the roof. Whereas when you find yourself playing week in, week out, your body does become accustomed to it. Of course, you need to rest you need to eat the right things you need to you know ice bath massage you need to stretch off or you need to do that but I think lucky enough for me uh, early on in my career I don't suffer many injuries and signing at Palace at 22 I was at a good age where um, you know if there's very few players that then go on to 33 34 35 and are still producing um, 46 games in a season that do get pulled out to look after them. But I was, I was at a good age to do that. Mm -hmm. um, and in that 2003-2004 season, uh, one promotion to the Premier League. Uh, let's talk about that season a little bit. And um, what kind of sticks out to you most when you think back about that 2003-2004 campaign? We started the season, I think we started the season really well. The first few games, it was like we've got a real chance here, and then, and we felt we had a strong squad. We knew we could compete for sure, and then the wheels fell off <laughs> dramatically. Um, uh, manager, uh, manager got sat. The uh, caretaker manager Steve Kemba came in. That didn't go swimmingly well either. And then by uh, December time, um, we were sort of heading into the bottom three. Um, although we still had a good squad, um, it was sort of we couldn't really put a finger on what what was happening. And then Ian Dowie came in, and I think we went on an 18, 20 game unbeaten run, and was um, fitness levels were taken to a whole new level, and we were just running over the top of teams. And once the the snowball momentum started, there was no stopping us. And AJ hit form, Dougie was scoring goals, Ships was scoring goals, the, the formation that we were playing sort of suited everybody and the, the 11 almost picked itself week in, week out. So um, it was a settled team and like I say, momentum just took us through. We, were, we became, well, we did in the end because we got to the final and won it, we became almost invincible in the end. Right. Yeah, I uh, noted that uh, Palace had gone 14, 14 wins, three draws, four losses, and Pat in your last, I guess, what would that be, 21 games. Um, so yeah, quite quite the second half run. And you scored in, you scored in that game against Sunderland in the, in the first leg of the playoff. Yeah, yeah I mean, the goal for you. 
hit a shot. I hit a shot and it was um, going goalwards and it took a deflection and went in the opposite corner. But um, again, I celebrated as if it was the World Cup winner. So I went um, slightly mental. But um, I think the... I think that summed the team up that goals was coming from all, all areas of the pitch. We had a, an unbelievable goal scorer and AJ Ships supported him. Dougie was as good as a second, third choice strikers you'll get in the league. And um, but people were chipping in with goals. There was Julian, myself, um, Big Popper from set plays. There was people from uh, Wayne Routledge scoring goals. So there was um, Hughesy. I remember Michael Hughes scoring some unbelievable goals on that run. So, the team, the team was gelling and the team was scoring goals from all angles. And yeah, I was fortunate enough to hit one in the, the crazy Sunderland home home leg. And um, it, it gave us a, a slight lead going into the second leg. Who's the best player you've ever played with? At Palace and then overall, unless they played at Palace. I would say for impact in the team at Palace was Andy Johnson because his his goal scoring was phenomenal. Uh, I think I had a good relationship with him as regards assisting his goals and, and playing passes for him to use his pace to go on through. So I had a, I had a good personal connection with him. Um, so Andy Johnson probably at Palace. Um, well, then I've been fortunate enough now to even look at players that are playing now in the Premier League in Adam Lallana, Oxlade-Chamberlain, Luke Shaw, Ricky Lambert, obviously not playing anymore, but went on to play for the countries. Um, they, uh, I've been fortunate enough to play with some really top top international players. Who's the best player you've gone up against? You know, I've I've played against your Paul Scholes, your Ryan Giggs, your Wayne Rooney's, your, um, your Nanny at Manchester United. Um the player that gave me a tough time the most was a guy called Jason Wilcox, who played for Blackburn when they won the Premier League. Left winger who um, would often cross the ball before I could physically get close enough to him. Mm -hmm. So he wasn't doing me for pace, but his movement and his decision-making to cross the ball early caused me problems. And I would sooner play against a quick wide player who was going to knock it and race me because I knew what they were going to do as opposed to someone that will cross early left foot, right foot and not necessarily beat you all the time. Right. And then I'm, I'm sure you've talked about this so many times, but uh, the hat trick against Wolves. Uh, I do have a lot of questions from fans about that. Um, so Alex Jones at AC Jones, uh, AC Jones, you won asks, he first said he's a, you're a childhood hero of his. Um, and he was wondering how much prep you had before uh, that hat trick or how, how much, um, how how far in advance uh, Neil Warnock kind of let you know that you were going to be, be playing up front that game? Well, this was it. We came back to a, um, we were in a bit of a mess as a club because we'd gone into administration. Um, Nathaniel Klein was due to sign for Wolves um, on the deadline day, and the game against um, the game against Wolves was actually the day after or maybe two days after the transfer window where Kleine had turned the move down. So we literally had trained the day before. We had a small, you know, we had some five-a-sides the day before and I ended up playing up front with Alan Lee just in a, a jovial way. You sometimes do in five-a-sides, you do end up playing as a striker just to mix it up because your team might be flooded with defenders. So um, I did play up front and I remember scoring quite a few goals in training that day with him. And... Um, Typical of Neil Warnock, we turned up to the stadium to play the Wolves game with the no preparation on the starting eleven, and he literally announced it in the dressing room that I was going to be playing to the right of Alan Lee of a front three. So me, Darren Ambrose on the left, and me on the right, and Alan Lee through the middle, and it was it was almost comical to the team. It, it certainly was because I don't know if Kleine had left and gone to Wolves, I'd have been playing right back because we didn't have another one. So. Thanks one one thank you to Kleine in my career um, of uh, of him staying so I could play there. But um, no, it, it was typical of Neil. He would come up with these crazy ideas and crazy selections, um, which has you know made him the the manager he is today. So not a lot of um, certainly not a lot of preparation. Right. Um, another question from Twitter. Uh, from Ryan West, what did you think when uh, Neil Warnock first asked you to play up front? I guess he told you to play up front. What kind of went through your mind? 
Um, I almost laughed, almost laughing. It was almost embarrassment because it's not something I did. It's not something I was recognised for. Um, but it was almost like, it was almost looking around the dressing room to almost apologise to my teammates to say, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, this isn't my fault. He's picked it. So it was, it was quite funny. And I think the lads, I think the lads took it in good spirit. And I mean, the first half, the first 45 minutes, if you asked any Palace fan, they would say that I was shocking. So to still be on the pitch in the second half was a surprise to me. Um, or still playing in the same position. And then, um, and then, you know, the, the hat-trick happened and it was still a crazy, crazy moment. Mm. Yeah, I think Palace may, maybe could have used you last year uh, to play striker. Um, yeah, I think they needed some last year for sure. <laughs> that's an issue scoring. You probably could have used your, um, your foot. Let's see. Uh, at a Poetic Mindset asks, uh, how did it feel to turn into a uh, Palace hero during such a difficult time in that season with the club kind of going into administration and uh, everything happening? Um, well, being at, being at Palace for eight years, I felt the club was my club. You know, often people get associated with clubs who, you know, they're from the local area or they, um, they're, uh, like I say, that they're a local boy that's come through or they've come through the ranks. Well, I was signed and the longevity of me being at the club, it felt like it was my club. So when we did go into administration, probably due to my age as well, I was probably 29, 30, that I was one of the senior figures in the dressing room. And I felt that, um, probably a little bit of additional responsibility that this is my club and I don't want them to go down. And so the, uh, the pride of succeeding in the end and maintaining the, um, the league status, albeit my last game for Palace, um, it, was, it was a really proud moment and something that, you know, it's always nice to be recognised by your own fans for the contribution you made to the club. Mm -hmm. And that last game against Wednesday, uh, where you needed to at least get that draw to, to stay up. Um, so they scored in the 87th, 86th or 87th minute it was to tie it up at 2-2. Uh, what were those last five, five minutes like? Shit, shit and old shit. Um, it was, um, to be honest, it was, we, we, had a, we, had a, we had a core of players in the dressing room who were proper leaders. I'm talking if you was going to war, if you was actually in a fight in a bar, these are the lads you want around you. So the Paddy McCarthy's, the Sean Derry's, the Clint Hills, the Alan Lees. Um, uh, and the, these are the characters that you want um, around you to, to have your back. And I think because of that and the mentality and the togetherness, um, we could have been 2-1 down with three minutes to go and I still think we'd have drawn because we, we had special players in the team that could score goals, but we had that togetherness, which meant on that particular day, you could sense it around the ground, you could sense it in the dressing rooms that um, Sheffield Wednesday were actually in fear of us. Mm. So, um, so yeah, I'd say that. I think that the, the, the emotions of them scoring so late on, you do, you do panic, but you trust yourself that you're still going to see it over the line. Mm-hmm. Um... I guess which one of these moments or any any other moment has really been the most memorable moment of, of your career, if you could kind of pick one uh, that stands out, um, even even one, one that we haven't talked about? Um, I think um, I think there's been so many. I think making, you, making my debut as a professional footballer at 17 was, although I don't remember so much of the game itself, it was a... You know, it's something I dreamed about as a as a youngster to, to go on and do and fulfil that that ambition. Mm -hmm. um, the personal note of the hat trick, obviously, and I do I do think um, it takes hell of a lot of ability and courage and luck to get promotions. But that survival Sunday at Sheffield Wednesday, um, the odds that season completely against us were were stripped from us being a promotion chasing team to a relegation fight because of financial problems. And I think that when your back's against the wall and you still achieve something, it's probably feels more of a, an achievement than you're always on the up, you're always positive, you're always confident, you're always driving forward for the promotion. So 
that that was definitely a massive day in my uh, in my career, and probably because it tied in with my last game for Palace as well. Yeah, I think one of your biggest achievements. You went your whole career without getting a red card. Um, I don't know if I if I could ever do that. Or did you? Did you get one? I did, but it wasn't officially. So it's actually a crazy story. It's one of these quiz questions where I actually got sent off at White Hart Lane at Tottenham and um, the card got rescinded because it wasn't actually my foul. Somebody else made the foul and I get sent off for it. <laughs> and then the referee got uh, demoted from the, the referees association for like a month or something. So. <laughs> was that at, at Palace? Yeah, yeah, for Palace, yeah. Okay. So that was, uh, although I've not officially been sent off, yeah. uh, because it was, but I did through mistaken identity, but mm. it was a crazy moment. Yeah, that, I feel that's an achievement. I, I've I played basketball growing up. I, I still play, you know, just uh, for fun. But um, I have a hard time not responding when people kind of get on my nerves. So I, I, I do not think I could do that if I was you go, you know, over 500 games without being sent off. You have to have a lot of, uh, I don't know, patience and, certain qualities uh you know yeah i think i was often the instigator i was often the one that was in the mouth and so people probably hated me more than i hated them but i, the, I was close quite a few times I've definitely yeah, I, was, I was gonna say this the second one always gets caught too so i mean if you're the instigator you're not gonna get caught especially mm -hmm. back in those days without var yeah oh well that's definitely it yeah without the so much media coverage you could actually get away with one or two things that you definitely can't nowadays yeah what are your feelings on on VAR? Um, my honest opinion is I don't like it. I like the game being the game that I grew up playing, the game I grew up watching, the game I... And that includes human error, unfortunately. Um, yes, um, titles, relegations can be decided on human error, but that's, um, that's part of the game that I grew up loving. I think the... The technology um, certainly in life has helped has helped everyone in the world, but um, I personally don't like it in football. Mm -hmm. You might not know the answer, but would you guess to say guess to say that's almost a consensus among amongst players? They would agree with, agree with you on that. Yeah, I think some would be. I think some. I think the offsides definitely players, um, people that are in the game, fans. I, I think that's become a farce. I think recently this season the handball's become a farce. Um, I do think some decisions are impossible for officials and the VAR certainly um, identifies, you know, problems that referees don't get to see off the ball incidents. I completely get that. But again, um, people, even without VAR, people were still getting suspended or, um, you know, match bans for certain things, which the referee alignment didn't see at, at that particular moment. So, um, yeah, I'm not. I'm not a big fan, but I can see why technologies come into life so frequently. How it's it's crept into football. Yeah. Um, when you're when you're playing and when you when you've been coaching, do you, do you watch a lot of football? Because uh, obviously, I mean, it, it's your life. So I wonder if you kind of get tired not tired of it, but um, you know what I mean. Just you're around it so much that when you go home, you don't want to go watch more. I'll be honest. The the controlling factor is really the wife. <laughs> <laughs> um, if I'm when I'm coaching, I'm I'm obviously I'm obviously you know on a match day I'm obviously on the sidelines, but then I have to watch the game back to then clip and um, mm -hmm. be ready to show back to the units, individual players, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So I'm watching a lot of football, but normally the team I'm working for. Um, so for me then to the, the couple of hours I do get on a Sunday when I'm working. For me, then say I want to watch um, Palace Man City on on Super Sunday. It sort of it don't go down too well with the wife who says I've not seen you all week and now you want to watch football again. So occasionally I I do I do watch I do watch it I do still enjoy watching football, but um, sometimes the restrictions of uh, family life um, takes my priorities away from the TV. Yeah, it's not a shocker. Um... <laughs> Another couple, couple of Q&A type questions that I want to ask before I forget. So who, who do you think is the most underrated player you've played with um, in terms of, I guess, outsiders, not really respecting how well of a player they were enough? Can you think of anyone? Yeah. Um, really, really good question. I think, I think, um, 
Sean Derry was a big one at Palace because the first time it appeared that he didn't have a great time at Palace. He signed the same, he signed the same month as I did. So we became like the best of friends. And his first spell at Palace, he he was played out of position, but still gave his all. He was still a big character in the dressing room. And he was one of them that you wanted in your team rather than playing against. And then he left. And then when he came back, he was actually played in his best position as a as a deeper midfield player, as, as initially he was played as more attacking. And I think he um everyone got to see the best of him then. So um, definitely a leader, definitely a, a, a captain, definitely someone that you um, you see that drives the team on, um, but not necessarily got all the plaudits he deserved um, because he's often appreciated more in the dressing room amongst the players than necessarily the one that gets all the goals or the one that, um, um, yeah, you know, makes many assists, etc. So Sean Derry probably during my Palace days was as big a, a hero in the in the dressing room appreciated his teammates as I'm sure the fans did the fans I know the fans really enjoyed Sean but probably other people during that time took the limelight away from him right um who's who's the funniest player you've, you've played with off off the pitch well I was a joker I was one of the I was probably the one in the dressing room that that messed about but there was me uh, Andy Johnson and Sean Derry were the three musketeers that often caused carnage in the dressing room at Palace. So, um, um, I had seen, uh, I was watching oh, one of like the Palace YouTube videos when you were talking about you three and how you would cut off each other's like shirts and like ruin each other's clothes when you got, when you get new clothing. Yeah. We, the, the, some of the dressing room, well, it, fortunate enough for us, well, fortunate enough for the rest of the dressing room, it was normally us three onto each other yeah. where I think everyone quite appreciated that, that we didn't take it mm. around the dressing room but AJ was becoming a big star in England as regards um, sponsorship deals you know sports brands and so he was flooded all the time with the latest Nike boots Nike trainers Puma Puma trainers um, Adidas they were all trying to sign him up and um, so he would come in every day in a new pair of trainers and there's often some that he liked more than others. Well, me, as soon as me and Sean found out that these were the trainers he liked, this was the company he was going with. The scissors came out and they were cut to shreds or the, the soles were cut off, but we'd lay the trainers back on. So after training, pick the trainer up and there's, the sole's not attached to the trainer or we'd stick his super glue, his train, get some super glue from the kit man and stick his trainers to the dressing room floor. <laughs> so we'd have to literally destroy the trainers to get them off. But, yeah, I had plenty of things done with me. I got a new pair of jeans. Uh, I think my wife might have even bought them for my birthday. And then to go home and tell her that the jean shorts now was like, oh my gosh, how am I going to tell her this? So they um, they certainly gave back a lot. And, you know, T-shirts became vests or you go to your car and there's Vaseline on the windscreen and you just cannot get that off. And so there was numerous tricks or days where you thought, it was often if you had an appointment. Short, I remember Sean had to go meet his um, accountant up in central London. And um, he came in this pale, really light grey tracksuit. And me and uh, AJ got marker pens and started writing juicy across the backside and that so that he he didn't have to... We know he didn't have time to go back. So you either go in some palace training kit into central London or you wear what you've got on. So he had to go up into London in this tracksuit with writing all across the, the backside. So that was pretty good. <laughs> Um, let's see here uh how was your uh time at, at southampton I, I know that you you didn't really want to leave palace um uh you may have even wanted to finish out your career there but um how would you kind of describe your time at southampton making that switch when you weren't really you know expecting that to happen yeah it was um it was a tough time i, I saw myself being at palace till the end of my career i, I really did and the, the moment I got a phone call from George Burley, who had taken over to say that he wasn't going to offer me a contract. It was devastating, to be honest. And then the, the move to Southampton came about and I literally didn't have much time to think about it. I had a phone call from my agent saying, right, it was probably 11 o'clock in the morning and I had to get to Heathrow Airport for two o'clock if I wanted to sign for Southampton. 
So it was literally, they were over in um, Switzerland on pre-season tour. So it was literally, I had to grab a bag as quick as I could, throw clothes in it, throw boots in it, throw everything I needed in it and get across London, which there's only one way to get across London. That's the train. You cannot afford to go in the traffic to get to Heathrow Airport. So the panic then of getting into London and then getting out of London to Heathrow to get there in time. So that was always the the worry. But um, yeah, then I, I went across to Switzerland, signed a contract with Southampton and we had two phenomenal years in back-to-back promotion. So um, it was uh, the most success I had, I had in a short space of time um, was at Southampton. And we, we had a, a squad of very good age where people were going to go on to bigger and better things because they were, they were a good age to continue to develop. Right. Um, I, I don't want to forget to ask also, I just feel like the question of what is it like to be a, a professional footballer is a good one to ask. Um, so obviously not many people get to experience that as a profession. So um, I guess maybe some like some of the pros and cons that people may not think of uh, that you have to go through. Um, when that is the, I think the, listen, I don't want, it's an unbelievable life and it, and it offers unbelievable rewards, but the, the sacrifices of, um, I missed my sister's wedding because I had a game and I couldn't make a wedding. The um, things like uh, Christmas periods, you don't get to spend a normal Christmas with your family because you've got a game on the Boxing Day. You might be in a hotel a lot of time, you're in a hotel Christmas Day night. So you don't even get to spend the night with your wife and kids. There's these sacrifices. There's... Um, there's pre-season tours where you, you go away for two, two and a half weeks and you don't see the wife and kids. Now, they're only sound minimal sacrifices because the rewards, the financial rewards, the feelings of promotion, success and being out playing in front of 20, 30,000 is phenomenal. But some of the some of the negatives are injuries. If you're injured or you're not being selected, you're heavily reliant on somebody else's opinion given the opportunity to play. Um injuries are a, a negative because you you obviously you're no good to the management team and so you feel that you feel the team are playing they're getting results or they're not but you're not contributing you, you feel like a spare part you do feel like what's the point it's a lonely place it's a really lonely place you feel what's the point in me me being here what's the, you know you might have a setback in the injury the disappointment of then prolonging your time out of the, the game or prolonging the time where you cannot be selected and you're no use to your teammates um so there's there's definitely it's not all highs there's definitely lows um then there's the pros of the feeling of winning a game the feeling of um uh the soreness post-match where you feel like you have actually earned your money today um you've been through you know you've been through the turmoil of a, a tough battle on the pitch but you've definitely earned your money so um, and also, you know, it's nice to be recognised in public. It's nice to be appreciated. Um, but the negative of that can also be if you're not doing very well, you can also be getting a little peppered in the um, in the press or in the in the public in the supermarket for not doing so well. Are you are you glad that you didn't play in like the true like social media Twitter age? I mean, you did a little bit, but I mean, I feel like it's just different different nowadays. It's just the criticism. That's- and all that is so harsh yeah i think it is you're under massive scrutiny you're better off not in my opinion you're better off not touching any of it because you can even say the most positive of things you can even be the most honest and loyal of people but it can still be uh, spun on its head and you can soon be criticized i think the i'm so pleased that it, i played my career where there wasn't that i think as well because footballers have changed nowadays that the, the through that, footballers have changed. There is a lot of um, self-promotion. It, it's individualised the dressing room because um, the collective team spirit is, is or it was the thing which galvanised the group and got you success. You couldn't be successful in football on your own. You needed your teammates to get your promotion. Whereas now, um, the financial rewards and the self-promotion turns... Um, turns footballers into a completely different beast. Yeah, especially with uh, I mean all the advanced t- statistics and I mean numbers that people on social media care about. If you don't have X amount of goals or X amount of assists, you're you're yeah. garbage. So yeah, 
I think the yeah. thing is, well, it, it's be, it's opened it, it's opened the world up to become non-private. You cannot, um, if you're on there, if you're on those platforms, people can get at you. People can comment. People can affect the way you think and the way you feel. Whereas, in in my younger days, there wasn't even mobile phones, so it's it got to the point where they'd have to see you in the street to make comment as opposed to you know mobile phones or reporters or the press can get all of your mobile numbers but it's nothing like social media right yeah i know um i'm just gonna make sure that i have all the fan questions answered uh oh here's a good one um from peter johnson who did you support as a boy growing up growing up i was um i was and probably still am um an everton fan believe it or not so (laughs) It was purely family. Um, my dad, uh, my granddad, um, my uncle were all Everton fans. And so I suppose being bought a kit as a young kid and then, um, I mean, Everton in the 80s were a, a really strong team. And I suppose that um, that strengthened their support of, of Everton. And I, I sort of followed suit and probably similar to you now that they're more of an underdog than a, one of the big six. So um, I still like following them. I still I still look out for the results. My son now is an Everton fan, probably because it's passed through generations. And um, he had something to cheer about about a month or so ago when I was top of the league for 24 hours or something daft. So, um, so he's seen that in his lifetime. We could just freeze frame that and take a picture and pretend they won the league, maybe. Yeah. Um... Good to know. That's interesting. Uh, and then one other question, and you can feel free to like not answer it or for me to not include this, but um, somebody asked what you thought of, sorry, my dog's going crazy. Um, what you thought when uh, Palace signed Wayne Hennessy in, I think it was 2014, given that he was the keeper who allowed you to score three goals on him. Yeah. Was- yeah. That's good. Do you know what? He's, um, he's, a, he's a very good goalkeeper. He actually did really well for Palace. Um, he, you know, it's one of it's one of them games where on the night I had my moment and and he didn't. I don't think there's there's a lot he could have done about a couple of them, but it's um, it's funny, mate, because you often players you come up against. It's, it's when I was in the youth team at Grimsby, I was an Everton fan, and the lad that I roomed with in my digs, he um, he got a move to Everton, so I was like devastated at the time, thinking I wish that was me. Um, but you often find in football that, you know, people go and sign on for clubs that you've had relationships with or you find yourself signing for clubs again where you've met up with a friend, you played at another club and um, it's no different to, you know, you're having a successful time uh, against, um, uh, against, uh, against and then uh, and Wayne, Wayne uh, signing for Palace. Signing for Palace. I think for Palace now, they... Um, because of us almost established ourselves as a Premier League club, it's it's really good to see. I think during my time, it was up and down. It was um, the battle of relegation, the, the battle of the administration when the club was in a in a, a bit of a mess. So, for me as an ex-player now to see them where they are, it's um, you know you go from spending such a long period of time at the football club, you then become a fan of that club. You do I do care about Palace. I do want them to do well. I do want their academy to to blossom as a Cat One academy and the facilities to develop and really establish themselves as a as a Premier League club because it's a it is a fantastic club with fantastic people and it's a great area of of England to have a football club. Yeah, uh, what are your thoughts on the on the current Palace team? Also, I mean the academy. If you have any thoughts as well, I know the U18s are killing it right now. Um, yeah. At Palace, uh, do you have any insight on that? Yeah, there's a lot of... Um, well, Paddy McCarthy is an old teammate of mine. He's now the coach of the under-18s. And Sean Derry, who's, you know, one of my best friends yet. Good teammate. He's um, doing the under-23s. Darren Powell's obviously helping out as another teammate with the under-18s. So it's good to see that um, players are being trusted, ex-players of Palace are being trusted to, to develop their own now. And they know when... What exactly what it feels like to play for Palace and pull the shirt on and the standards that are required to represent represent the first team. Um, I think as regards the first team, they've got a certainly a very experienced manager um, who um, a very experienced manager who um, you know I think 
for a Palace to go and uh, recruit a, a former England manager is is a big achievement, and I think he can definitely pass on uh, his experience to the to the coaching staff at um, Palace, which hopefully keeps the club uh, in a comfortable position for years to come. And any players you particularly enjoy watching on Palace right now? Well, I I played Obviously with Wolf. yeah I played with Wilf. Uh, he broke through when I was still at the club, and to see how he's developed as a as a person and as a player is is phenomenal. And he's he's certainly a player that people enjoy to watch, whether you're a Palace fan or you're not. So. Um, he's one of the players, uh, one of the very few players in the Premier League that can do something completely unexpectedly, and um, that's always nice to watch. It's always nice to um, to see that player wearing the 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 Palace shirt, and um, you know I hope they manage to keep hold of him for um, for a few years yet, which is going to be tough. So um, fingers crossed he, he stays loyal and and they can match his ambition. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, it's it's it is nice to have a Nathaniel Klein back, but I I myself am a Joel, Joel Ward enthusiast. I think he's a really good right back, and I feel like he doesn't get enough credit from um, just the general you know footballing fan base in in, in England. Um, yeah, he's up on his game. He's um he's done really well. I, I I quite liked him when he was at Portsmouth before, before he signed at Palace. He's um. Unfortunately for, for Joel, he plays in a position, as I did, that isn't a, uh, a sexy position. <laughs> Not many people grow up in, in England wanting to be a, uh, a right-back. So um, there's always the, the glamour of the goals or the goalkeeper or the, you know, the, the wide player with the tricks, etc. So he is most definitely an unsung hero in the Palace squad. He's very consistent. He's... Um, He's he's developed at Palace, um, and again, Klein has gone back there. But I'm sure Joel will be pushing him all the way to to get that shirt back. And Palace, are, you know, are lucky to have two players of that caliber and fighting for that one position. Yeah, he's a very good defensive right back. And as you were saying, I feel like nowadays, if I mean right back, fullbacks in general are expected to chip in with with goals and assists much more than they were 15, 20 years ago. Um, at least I think so. I, mean, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, or if you agree or not. Yeah, I do. I think the, I mean, the games, the games evolving, and um, it sort of goes in circles. When when I was coming through, um, even defenders, defenders were in the team to actually keep the ball out the back of the net, and you need to concentrate on that, and that's your priority. And um, but because now the games become far more athletic. Um, you um, teams keep possession a lot more. It's not necessarily so end to end. You know, it's a lot of possession based, especially at the top level. So um, that allows fullbacks to get forward, and it's asked of you nowadays. It's the 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 model, the the specimen of a fullback is changed to be extremely athletic. Whereas sometimes some clubs, you know, when we was in the championship, you come up against some clubs that were actually playing big six foot three centre backs at right back or left back just to be solid defensively. So the, the position itself has definitely evolved. The game has evolved and become far more uh, athletic, far more speed based, far more um, possession based. So, um, you know, the, the position specific criteria, if you like, has changed over the years.